God, we pray that you would open our eyes to see you this morning. Would you open our ears to hear your words? And would you open our hearts to receive what you have for us? May you be magnified. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. Welcome back from spring break. I hope your break was whatever you needed it to be, and I want to particularly thank those who went to warm places because you brought it back with you, and maybe it's here to stay, maybe it's not. We might get another cold day or snow, but it'll be gone fast. So thank you so much, and I'm so glad that we get to start the last stretch of our semester. It's a big stretch, but it is the last stretch of our semester. I'm glad we get to start it and worship together. And I want to I start with a question, and it's a, it's a rather obvious one, but have you ever experienced division between you and another person? Yes, probably. Or maybe you witnessed division take place between a group of people or another two people. The answer is probably yes. I think particularly of the last two years, all of the things that could have caused division and did cause it, we've all experienced that. And I wonder if in the middle of this division, whether you experienced it personally or you just watched something from afar, did the thought ever come into your mind that there's just no hope for reconciliation? That there's just no way forward or way out of what's taking place? In our series, Joseph and his family have experienced all sorts of division over many years. And there's no clear path to reconciliation. I mean, where we're at in our story, we haven't even seen Joseph's brothers or father for over 20 years. We don't even know if they're still alive or what's happening. There is no clear path for reconciliation. And and throughout our series, we've been focusing on Joseph and his dream, right? We've really been zooming in individually on Joseph and what's been happening. But I want to shift this morning just a little bit and begin to focus on Joseph's family and what's happening with them. And to do that, I want to go back in Genesis just a little bit and trace some of the division that took place even before Joseph was in the picture, We could go back to Genesis 3, which is the fall, but we'll skip ahead. Genesis 25, if you remember, that's when Jacob, Joseph's father, was grabbing Esau's heel, trying to be the firstborn to get the birthright. And it didn't didn't work out that way, but then later he tricked Esau into selling him his birthright. And then if we move forward a few years, Jacob gets married, he has two wives, and there's division between Leah and Rachel, because Rachel was the favorite which then creates division between Leah's sons and Rachel's sons, which we see in our series. And then just even going a little bit deeper, Jacob's oldest son, Reuben, slept with his father's concubine to try to usurp his power. It didn't work out for him. And then the next two sons in line disqualify themselves because they killed a few people in response to a crime done against their family. Which then leads us to the division we've unpacked in this series, Joseph's favoritism and Joseph's dream, which led to an assault and slavery and prison and now being exalted second in command in Egypt. And so if you're in here this morning and you think your family is dysfunctional, take heart because Joseph's was even more so. 
right? We can, we can, uh, we can look at that. He, they, they were dysfunctional. There was division. So how will reconciliation begin to take place in Joseph's family? Because it must if the dream from God is going to come true. What about for you and me? How does reconciliation begin to take place in our lives with God and with others? So if you have your Bibles, I want you to open up to Genesis chapter 42. I'm going to begin in verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. So now we see after 20 years, Joseph's family is brought back into the picture. The last time we saw Joseph's brothers lying to their father Jacob, and then Jacob was mourning the loss of his favorite son, Joseph. And in the text, we see that this famine that was impacting Egypt, which is why Joseph was exalted to second in command, this famine is not just impacting Egypt, but it's impacting Canaan, and it was severe over all the earth. And so Jacob heard some rumors. He probably saw caravans of people heading to Egypt, and he told his sons to go get some grain. He said, why do you just stand there? Why are you doing nothing? Go get us some food. So Jacob sends all the brothers to Egypt except Benjamin, who's the new favorite. And I, I, I want to pause for just a moment. I think it's important just to, to realize something, is that there, this worldwide famine that's happening right now is the backdrop of this family drama and reconciliation story that we're about to see. And God is the prime mover in it. That God is actively involved through his providence, even in a famine. Maybe even in a pandemic. Maybe even in our politics. Maybe there's some grand thing that's taking place behind the scenes that we could never imagine. And that's what's happening here. And so the brothers head to Egypt. Verse 6. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. Joseph, who had not seen his family in 20 years, recognizes his brothers as they bow down to him. And the text tells us that he remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. 
the dreams of his brothers bowing down, the dreams of his family, his father and his parents bowing down to him. And in all likelihood, Joseph probably hadn't forgotten about those dreams, but they were no longer the focus. They were a distant memory that took place a long, long time ago, and God's work in the moment in Egypt and what he was doing was the focus. And if we look back in chapter 41, this becomes even more clear through the names of Joseph's sons. His firstborn was named Manasseh, which means God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. And then his next son, Ephraim, means this, for God had made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Joseph, at this point, needed to forget about his father's house. He needed to forget about the dream. And Joseph also needed for pain and affliction and suffering to take place in order to bear the fruit that God had for him. But why? Why did it have to happen like this? Because before God could bring the dream to pass, he had to strip Joseph of all his ego and idolatry. Before God could bring the dream to pass, he had to strip it of all of Joseph's ego and idolatry. Right? Because remember, when Joseph received the dream, he was a 17-year-old kid who viewed the dream through the lens of self. That his family would bow down to him. That he would rule over his family. That his dream was pri primarily for his benefit and his growth. And not just that, Joseph was a dreamer. He lived in the future rather than in the present. Joseph was more driven by his dreams for the future than delighting in God in the present. And so God, through violence and slavery and condemnation and prison and famine, stripped Joseph of his ego and idolatry. This is the way God works. It's the way he works with me and with you. Why? So that God gets the recognition. So that God gets the glory. Because all too often our humanity wants to take over and we want control and we want fame and we want the recognition. But if God allowed that, we would never become aware of him in the present or dependent upon him for the future. If God gave you and me full autonomy over everything, we would never become aware of him in the present moment or dependent upon him for the future. You know, I want to be, I'm, can I be honest? I'm going to be honest. I don't need to ask. I want to be honest for a minute. I struggle with this. I've always been a dreamer. I think about and pray for and desire the future. I am often more driven by my dreams for the future than I am by encountering God in the present. But here's the problem. What I have realized is that when this hot happens, I often want the dream more than I want the God who gave it. The dream becomes my God, and the actual living God becomes a tool to get what I want. And this is idolatry. And also, it's easier for me to live in the future 
Because in the future, there's always an idealized version of myself. The version that I think I ought to be, or should be, or want to be. And it's easier for me to live with that version of myself than the actual version of myself. Maybe you can relate. But you know what? God loves us too much. God cares about us too much. God desires his name to be made above every other name too much to allow us and to let us be driven by our dreams for the future rather than him. John Mark Comer writes this. He says, Often God will let the dream die in order to free our heart from its idolatry and bring us to a place where we're content with God himself. Maybe God is allowing your dream to die to create space for you to delight in him in the present. Maybe he is allowing affliction in your life to strip you of all your ego and to strip you of all your idolatry just as he did for Joseph. And just as Joseph was forgetting the dream, he remembers the dream. Somehow that always happens in the way God works. So let's pick up where we left off. And Joseph remembered the dream that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. So Joseph remembers the dream. But at the same time, he probably realizes it's not yet the full dream. Yes, his brothers are bowing down, but there's only 10 of them. Where's the 11th? And not just that, where, where is Joseph's, where's the rest of Joseph's family? Where's his father? And so Joseph comes up with a plan to find out a little bit more about his family. He wants, is his father still alive? Where's Benjamin? What, what's going on with him? What, what's going on? Is, is my dream still a possibility? And so what Joseph does, is he accuses his brothers of being spies. And they quickly assert, they say, no, we're not spies. We're, we're sons of one man, and we're honest and honorable. Can you imagine Joseph's outrage at this statement? He's probably thinking, honest, honorable? You sold your own brother into slavery. That is the opposite of what you just said. There, there's, there's no way I'm going to believe anything that you say. And so from there, Joseph enters into interrogation mode. He begins to say, you are spies, you are spies, you are spies, and you have come to see the nakedness of the land. And this interrogation technique unnerves his brothers and it breaks down their resistance. And so they begin to give details about their family to prove their honesty. And they say, we're 12 sons of one man. One is no more, and one is still at home. Benjamin, the youngest. So Joseph decides to test them to see if they're telling the truth. And he tests them by this. He says, okay. Basically, he says, what you're going to do, you need to send one brother back home 
and go get Benjamin and bring him back here. And while that brother leaves, I'm going to keep the rest of you guys in prison, and then we'll know that you're telling the truth, that Benjamin actually exists, that he's a real person, that he is alive. And so Joseph puts all of them in custody and lets them think about it for three days. I'm sure Joseph is loving this a little bit, right? Like how the tables have turned. He's like, finally. He was human too, you know. And so he lets them think about it, and then he comes back, and he wants to see how they respond to their offer. And I want to lean into the brothers' response. Here's what they say in verse 21. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And then Reuben speaks up and he says, I told y'all we shouldn't have done this to Joseph. I knew we shouldn't have done it. And now we're getting what we deserve. This is the first time in 20 years, more than 20 years, the brothers have recognized and confronted their guilt. For 20 years, they've been carrying around this burden and this lie. For 20 years, they have been resisting the reality of their sin rather than confronting it. And now, in this moment, for the first time, they're beginning to confront their sin against Joseph and their entire family. We do this too. We resist the reality of our sin rather than confronting it. This week, I I asked a few people what it means to confront your own sin. And and here's, here's what my wife said. She usually says the best things. She says, you know, I think there's two types of confession. She says, one, there's confession as profession. It's about what we do, our behavior, and it stays on the surface. And this really isn't true confession at all. But then there's confession as confrontation. It's about our heart. It's where we actually are in the moment, and it goes beneath the surface. Isn't that good? Right? It's not about what we do, but it's about where we actually are and confronting the reality of it. And so this Confession as confrontation is about letting go of the false self, the role or title or personal image that you have constructed. It's about letting go the person you think you ought to be or should be or want to be and confronting the reality of who you are and where you are. Think about it like this. For over 20 years, really their whole life, Joseph's brothers have thought they needed to be the strong, respected, and wise older brothers and sons. It's partly why they committed the crimes that they did. But in truth, they were jealous. They were wounded by their father's favoritism and their brother's unawareness. They were liars, murderers, adulterers, and they were scared. Can you imagine upholding that false self for 20 years? For 20 years, they've never confronted their sin, and they've lived a lie. 
What are you resisting in your life? What sin are you refusing to confront? What false image are you upholding? And it might be something you've carried with you for a few days, or a few weeks, or months, or even years. And it might be a sin you've committed. It could be an offense done against you, a pressure put on you, or even a lie that you've come to live by. Do you want to confront it? Are you ready to lay it down? And you're probably thinking as you're sitting here, yes, I want to confront it. Yes, I want to get rid of it. Yes, I'm sick of the burden and the pressure and the weight. But you just think, how? I've lived with this for so long. I've struggled with this for so long. The false self, this self who I live to be, it's the only self I know. It's known and it's comfortable. Soren Kierkegaard wrote this. He said, sin is not the breaking of moral rules, but is not wanting to be oneself before God. Translation, sin is staying on the surface and never getting to our depths. Can I tell you, Dort students, staff, faculty, confronting your own sin is not about your willpower and it is not about your moral perfection. It's about bringing your full selves before God. Every part of you. And you know the reason we get to do that? Because we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And listen to this. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can bring the deepest and darkest and most hidden parts of ourselves before God confidently because of Jesus and his blood and his righteousness, not ours. At this point in the story, Joseph begins to weep and he collects himself and he returns to his brothers And he arrests Simeon. And he gives orders to fill the rest of his brother's bags with grain and to replace their money. And he says, okay, go get your brother Benjamin. Bring him back here. And when you come back, I'll give you back your brother Simeon. And that's what Joseph does. But again, let's lean in to his brother's response. Here's what, the, here's what the text tells us. He says, At this their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? What is this that God has done to us? Here's what one commentator writes describing this. He says, This is the first time the brothers mention God. 
Their aroused consciences see God at work behind their crime and punishment. Here's the point. When we stop resisting the reality of our sin, when we stop resisting the reality of our humanity and begin to confront it, our hearts of stone crack open and God enters in. And guess what? God's not surprised by what he finds. He's not disgusted at your sin or shocked by it, and he's not angry at you. And if you don't believe me, read the Gospels. You know who Jesus is angry at? He's angry at, he's never angry at sinners. He's always angry at people who don't think they are sinners. And God enters into your heart when he sees a crack, when he sees the opportunity, and he's just overjoyed that you're at this point. He enters in and he gently begins a back and forth, up and down journey of freedom, healing, and renewal. He enters in and he transforms the heart. And he enters in and he has immeasurable grace, and immeasurable mercy, and immeasurable compassion. In our story this morning, Joseph and his brother's hearts of stone are beginning to crack open, and God is entering in, and the reconciliation process is starting. And God works the same way with us. So here's my hope, here's, here, here's my desire, here is my deepest prayer for myself and for you this week, is to bring your full selves into God's presence. To bring the deepest and darkest and most hidden parts of yourselves into the light of God's presence. Do it. The stakes are high because sin is the only way, it's the only thing, sin is the surefire way to crowd out space for God in our life. But when we give God our depths, he raises us up to our heights through grace, mercy, and compassion. The way up is down. And it will be hard. And it won't necessarily happen the way you want it or how you want it or when it'll, how quickly it happens, but it will be hard, but I promise it will be worth it. And if you're still unsure, cling to this promise from Proverbs. I'll leave you with this. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. It's guaranteed. Done deal. It's a promise. So bring your full selves into God's presence this week.